Okay, the chief is here. He is here. Uh, wait, I'll fix this thing here a little bit. Hello, one, two, three, four. Oh, everything's working good here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've noticed that... Uh, uh, hello, gang. <laughs> you okay? <laughs> I've noticed that uh, there's a fantastic amount of news here lately on the cockroach. Can't explain it. Well, I guess I can't explain it. They're taking over all over the world. As a matter of fact, uh, the biggest cockroach that I have seen in recent years, and I'm quite of an aficionado on the cockroach. Wait just a minute here. One, two, three, four. Yellow. Yeah. The biggest cockroach that I've seen in years, I saw in Tehran, in Iran. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you. What a mean-looking cockroach. And, uh, yeah, they, they, I, I found... Uh, I was sitting in a in a uh, in a restaurant in Tehran, and I was reading a newspaper there, and it was you know published in Iran, and they had a, a news item on the front page, and it said that with a great deal of pride they said that there were over 1,600 various types of cockroach in the world, and I thought about that you know very interesting. It says and that we here in Iran have over 800 of those varieties right here in our borders. <laughs> I don't know whether this was chauvinism or not, but uh, nevertheless, I just let that hang in there. Well, I saw one, and he wasn't, uh, I happily have to admit, he was not in my hotel. Uh, <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, the hotel that I was staying in in uh, Iran was so elegant that I felt a little embarrassed even being there. That uh, Apparently, in the Middle East, there's only two kinds of people there's the very elegant, and then there's the rest of them. There's just two, <laughs> two types. There's hardly any in between. And uh, but by the way, one more thing I must point out about Iran. Iran is the elephant's graveyard of 1957 Dodges. Now, don't ask me why, but every third car you see is a 1957 Dodge Coronet. Yeah, and they, uh, with giant fins. That was back in the period of... Uh, of the total befinned cars, you know, when the, the Plymouth people had these ads around. It says, suddenly, it's 1960. Great ads. And the 1960 was no better for them than 1957. But nevertheless, uh, the uh, the 57 uh, Dodge is at its absolute finest in uh, Tehran. Now, if any of you are interested in collecting that type of car, you'll find a lot of them around there. And uh, also, you'll find it very exciting riding in an Iranian cab. Uh, especially since nobody in the nation speaks any known language, and uh, they race around. I see the president is going to drop by Tehran. Uh, I just uh, read in the paper he's going to drop by Tehran on his way back from Moscow, which is a quite, kind of a roundabout way of getting back from Moscow. But nevertheless, he's dropping by Tehran. And I can give him some words of advice. For one thing, there's a uh, there's a uh, well, there's a rather shifty silversmith who. Uh, who keeps up his, the appearances of his trade in the bazaar, and I'd stay clear of him. He tracked me for about, oh, I'd say a good 400 yards, plucking at my elbow all the way and barking in Farsi at me. Uh, I, I, uh, at first, I thought he was trying to sell me silver, but with the leer on his face, I knew it was something else, which we will not go into. It. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to say what it was. I had no idea, but I had suspicion. Now, uh, I... Uh, <laughs> For those of you who wonder what what's all this about, uh, as you probably know, uh, last week I went around the world. Simply went around the world. That's all there was to it. And uh, before we get into some of these uh, tapes that I made, 
in various places. I do not interview people when I go places. I, I, I have a terrible, a terrible thing against interviewing. And before we uh, go into any of these, uh, these tapes, I got a couple of wild ones. And incidentally, when I play this next one, I want you to turn up the gain of your receiver. Turn up the gain as high as you can. And uh, uh, if you've got any Chinese punk around, you know what is it, punk? Well, you know, you know what you, you know what punk is, don't you? Well, well, start burning the Chinese punk at the same time. Get somebody to set fire to your rug, and uh, get some cheap dime store perfume. Mix it all with that, and you will have the the heady, unforgettable aromas of the Iranian bazaar, which. Uh, Guaranteed to put you off your uh, your food your food for a couple of weeks. Let's see, we've got uh, a lot of commercials here. Oh yeah, the first one I'd like to do is to clear up some problems about tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow night uh, we're doing our big show. It's going to be in Red Bank, New Jersey. And uh, for those of you who have been calling, we've been loaded with calls all day long about it. There will be tickets at the door. I repeat. Uh, We've set aside a whole raft of tickets for the, you know, for at the box office because people always, there's the one group of people who just refuse to buy any tickets unless it's at the box office. So we're going to have tickets at the box office. But if you'd like to be sure to make the show, we're really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a real ball. It's a genuine spring bacchanal. We're bringing spring and the fertility rights and the whole business to Jersey. It's about time they got a few little fertility things going there. And it's going to be one performance only. It's going to be at the Carlton Theater in downtown Red Bank, which is real easy to get to. If you're uh, planning to go, just drive up the Garden State Parkway, and uh, you'll see the Red Bank exit. Get off the Red Bank exit and go right to Red Bank. The next thing you know, you're in front of the Carlton. No problem. It's a big thing right in the middle of town there. And uh, if you'd like to call for tickets, you can call the box office, area code 201. That's New Jersey, area code 201. And the number is 747 38 Oh, oh, and we're going to have the uh, Sinful Street 2 there. We're going to have a lot of fun tomorrow night. That's area code 201-747-3800. I repeat, 747-3800. That's in Jersey. And they will have tickets at the box office. And if you happen to be near a Ticketron outlet anywhere in New York or New Jersey, they also have tickets, too. Okay, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, the Carlton Theater, Red Bank, New Jersey. And I'll be there with bells on, wearing my green sequin bikini. You do the underwater ballet. I've ch- I've been changed since my world trip. I there's something sinister about me. And uh, you've got the auto show spot in there, please, if you will. It happens every spring, and it's wonderful. The International Auto Show at the Coliseum. Marvel at the Moon Car, ready to travel the lunar circuit. The future is here with the new electric autos. Admire antiques, classics, racers, experimentals. See stunning cars from all over the world, plus racing movies, beautiful models, fashions. It's an Easter holiday at the world's greatest auto show. The International Auto Show, New York Coliseum, now through April 9th. Yeah, that was real good. (laughs) All right, you know, uh, uh, to to kind of fill you in and uh, to get right to the heart of it, I went around the world last week, in one week. And it is a heady experience, let me tell you. Uh, I can't think of anything that you could do that would even come close to that. And among other exotic things that I saw, I, I've come to the conclusion that, uh, well, you know, it's famous, uh, the, the travel that the early Romans did. 
you know, before the empire collapsed, the Romans were all over the world. <laughs> and just before the uh, British Empire went down the drain, you could hardly go any place in the world without running into some Britishers, bringing civilization to the natives. Well, uh, I, I have to admit that, that uh, the, the American is totally ubiquitous. There's, there's an, an almost insatiable desire on the part of particularly elderly ladies with blue hair and tennis shoes bearing strange knit shopping bags to travel all over the world with dogged determination and usually dragging behind them their tired and protesting husband. <laughs> you find this everywhere. And they, they carry notebooks and they look very serious. And uh, one of the most exotic crews that I ran into was a crew in, uh, right in Tehran. And they were in a bus. And, uh, this is, to me, this was more exotic than almost anything I saw in the whole city. They were in a bus, and it was a determined-looking group of what appeared to be uh, retired dentists and retired school teachers, leatherly ladies, very leather uh, faces and uh, flowered print dresses with low, sensible shoes, and uh, they were doggedly traveling in this bus. And, you know, it was, a, it was a tour. But listen where they were going, Herb. The bus tour had begun in Afghanistan. <laughs> Why it began in Afghanistan, I don't know. I mean, they didn't tell me how they got to Afghanistan, but it began in Afghanistan. And they were taking a bus, for some curious reason, to Munich. Now, get out your globe. You'll <laughs> see that's one hell of a bus ride. And uh, here they were. They were running around in, in, uh, in Tehran with, with a, there's a curious glazed doggedness that people who are embarked on, on madness of that sort get. And you could see there was ill-concealed hatred uh, in this little crew that had traveled by blocky bus over bumpy roads from Afghanistan, and they had now arrived in Tehran, which is about halfway of the trip, you see. And you could just see underneath it all there were clenched teeth. And you could see who the... Uh, who the horses, you know, what's were in the crowd. You could see who the passive ones were. It was like a ship of fools, you know. <laughs> you could just see that uh, that there were lifelong hatreds being formed on this trip, and uh, they and somehow I got thrown into this mob for one brief moment. It was like being suddenly thrown into a into a hot house of, and uh, they began to pluck at my elbow. Don't 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 get near him. He's uh, something wrong with that one. And five minutes later, the one that they've been pointing at is plucking me on the elbow. He's, Get near that one. You know, up here he taps the head. So uh, <laughs> they were right in the middle of Tehran, and uh, you know, the, and there seems to be something uh, uncontrollable about little old ladies about travel. I don't know what it is, but they—they they, uh, American old ladies, I know. And uh, the husbands always look resigned, very tired, and they have the look in the eye of a man who wonders why, why did it all lead to this? What the hell am I doing here? And uh, you see them once in a while getting away from them and sitting in the bar, and they look off into the into middle distance, into the into the distance, and they're usually drinking Jack Daniels doggedly. Uh, this is <laughs> this is W O R New York. Speaking of little old ladies with blue hair, and uh, when I was in the Tehran, I uh, among other things, uh, I decided the, uh, the one thing you don't want to do when you get in any of these places is to get involved with the the so-called classical tours. Although I did, I did take the occasion to go and see the Shah of Iran's uh, crown jewels. Fantastic scene. 
I mean, it's totally beyond my comprehension why people, uh, even the design, it, it reminded me of the kind of things like my Aunt Clara liked, the uh, paisley shawls and stuff with the uh, beads all over them. But I went there and I saw this, and I, had, I, I was instantly reminded of Top Copy. Did you ever see that movie with uh, Peter Ustinov in a Top Copy? When they uh, when they ran a big it was a big caper on how to steal the crown jewels of of, uh, of uh, Istanbul, and uh, boy I had that feeling they, they were pointing with great pride to the largest diamond in the world and all the ladies crowded around to look at the largest diamond in the world <laughs> and, uh, and it was, you know the whole scene and so I finally split away from this this uh, hot house atmosphere and uh, every city I've noticed. No matter where you go, has a has a uh, a part of the city where the mole people live. Now in New York, the mole people live in the village. Well, what are the mole people? Well, uh, the mole people, you know, the, the the true urbanites. They crawl over one another like great hordes of some kind of curious two-legged vermin, and uh, usually they are they are heavily bearded. Uh, they smoke everything from uh, from oak leaves. To the rarest spice taken from Egyptian mushrooms. Uh, this is this is the uh, this is. In other words, in every every world in every country I've ever been, in, there is a version of the village. Well, in uh, Tehran, you got to go to the bazaar. Now the bazaar goes back a couple of thousand years. They don't even know in in, in Tehran when it began. Now, for those of you who don't know much about Iran, Iran is what used to be called Persia. It's ancient Persia, and uh, a lot of the ancient Persia still remains. In fact, uh, they, they talk about Omar the Tentmaker, and this is his country, you know. They talk about Omar the Tentmaker as if he just uh, was working for one of the local newspapers a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the bazaar is, is, is a place that's way off in one side of, of Tehran, which is a curious modern ancient city. It lays there... In the, in the middle of all these fantastic mountain peaks with uh, snow. Did you know that some of the most elegant skiing in the world is done in Iran? Oh, very elegant. Très elegant. I mean, uh, it, it makes the uh, skiing in, in Switzerland look like sliding up and down hills in Jersey on barrel staves. Uh, because this is where the really elegant uh, international set go. They, they, there's nothing that the elegant international set hates is other people in the elegant international set. And so they flee to places like Iran, and uh, these are very dangerous mountains. And the atmosphere is interestingly dangerous in that area. There are still guys that are still spying for the Luftwaffe in Iran. <laughs> I suspect, yeah, I suspect there are there are out of work German spies that don't even haven't even heard yet that the war has been over for years. They just know that their checks have stopped somewhere along the line, but they figure that's inefficiency in the Luftwaffe or the or the uh, Groundstufel or whatever it is they're part of. But uh, the air is crisp there. It's, it's cool. The city's at about three or 4,000 feet above sea level. And the mountains hang over it all. And right in the middle of it is the bazaar. And you seem to go down underground into this thing. It's thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of passages. It's covered over. It's not, a, it's not one building, anything like that. It's like a giant rabbit warren. I don't know of any thing that's even a parallel to it in, in our country. It's like if you took a million little buildings and hooked them all together, put a roof over it, and it, it stretched for miles, and it was all sort of underground with water trickling, 
and uh, little burrows walking around, stepping on your feet, millions of guys yelling, and uh, this is the bazaar, and, and it, was, it was the end point of many of the caravans. This, these bazaars, this particular bazaar, is where many of the caravans ended that would go all the way to Europe back in the medieval days and later when they would travel to the ancient storied east for spices and gold. This is where they came to. And when they went east, they would come from places like India, and they would trickle all down, take them years to get finally to this bazaar, which is like the center of all the, the eastern ancient bazaars. And so I, I went down there in the middle of the afternoon. The sun was just getting high, and, and uh, you could smell uh, just everything. There's just no way to describe the smell. They have fantastic fish hanging, uh, giant fish. Uh, there are goats, and there are, there are little, little donkeys running all over the place. And thousands and thousands of, of peddlers who've been in. You can just see there that the background in their scene goes all the way back to the days before Christ. And they look just exactly the way they did then. And they squat in millions of little, little cubicles, selling everything from buttons to, uh, to uh, you name it, uh, balloons with Mickey Mouse pictures on them. Every, every conceivable thing is sold in the If you can't get in the bazaar, it does not exist. Well, as I walked into the bazaar and through the main gate, which is a big arch gateway that, that heads down into what looks like a subterranean cavern, I turned on my tape recorder, just let the tape recorder go so you could hear the sounds of what the bazaar the ancient Persian bazaar in Tehran sounds like. Turn your gain up as high as you can. This is a real lease breaker. This is the way the bazaar really sounds. This is the sound of the covered bazaar in uh, Tehran. The, uh, these comments that I, I uh, have on the tape were just for my own information. This is uh, not to be broadcast, but we'll let you hear them anyway. No, they're not. They're not the official comments. Just uh, for my own note taking. Not a wild sound. It's just like, like a giant human beehive. And people go roaring right through these little passageways on motor scooters. And so on. Just, just go roaring through. People leap them knock over the tea and there are millions of samovars for sale all kinds of pieces of uh, ancient Persian brass uh, there's a curious aesthetic in that area this is probably the world's headquarters of slob art you've never seen such terrible looking stuff in your life Glassware. In fact, I saw a, a salt and pepper shaker made out of blue glass in the shape of two hippopotamuses wearing birthday hats. Figure that one out. Yeah, little birthday peach. <laughs> Listen to it. 
These are all guys calling out the stuff they sell. You smell all that strange, sweet pastry they sell. Dried fruit. Raw fish. Tea. Many of you speak the language, you may know what they're talking about. At that point, did you hear me say, excuse me, that I was bumped in the back by a burrow. <laughs> Just nudged me out of the way. Now, all I did was walk along through the bazaar with the tape recorder on it to give you an idea how it sounds like. And, and the sound echoes up and down in this place because it is covered. Once in a while, you see a, a little ray of sun coming through the top of them. As you move in and out of the various uh, passageways, they, you can see them bending off to the left or right. It's like being in a gigantic, uh, unimaginably sprawled-out mammoth cave. Bizarre and Tehran. Now, what he was doing, when you heard that, he was banging two blocks of wood together to get people's attention. He just banged them together. Oh, that's, a, that's the sound of the bazaar at Tehran. Now, before we go any further, we got a couple of spots here. Let's see. Uh, speaking of travel, have you, got that, have you got that music for me in there? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if you'd like to do some really elegant traveling, I would like to recommend a trip for you. Uh, this is it, man. Uh, this is Portuguese you're listening to. How would you like to be driving along tonight? You know, soft, warm air in the along the coast of Portugal and stopping off for a little lobster and a little wine, man. Well, you can do this on an incredible, and this is a fantastic travel by, an eight-day fly-and-drive tour. Get this, for only $270. Eight days in Portugal, and includes a car, because the people at TAP, the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, have put Portugal on sale until the 30th of April, and that's just this month. $270 for eight-day drive tour, fly-and-drive tour for only $270. And incidentally, both of these tours, this tour includes round-trip economy airfare, the whole the whole shlemu. So call your travel agent or the people at TAP for complete details. The number in New York is 421-8500, 421-8500. And the sale ends the 30th of April. Portugal. <laughs> This is uh, Portugal is one of my favorite cities anywhere in the world. Just a you know, just got a feeling to it. How to describe it? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, there's there's a funny thing about traveling. Uh, you get addicted to it. Uh, I I uh, at this point in my life, I, I I couldn't imagine not having in my mind another trip that I'm about to take. I'd rather spend money on travel than anything I can think of. I can't think of anything else I'd rather spend money on. 
Because, uh, you know, for one thing, uh, once you've traveled, that's something you can never, you can never lose. Uh, you can't, uh, yeah, you just can't, you can't lose it. Once you've walked through the bazaar, uh, once you've walked through the bazaar of, uh, of Iran, it's, it's, it's in your head forever. You can't get rid of it. You can, <laughs> Hello. yeah, okay, there, there I go with my comments again. Well, when you get it set up, just let me know. Once, yeah, here, listen to him. Hello, one, two, three. Four. Okay, all right, cut it, cut it. Cut it. No, no, I don't want any more bizarre. No more bizarre, Jerry. We've had enough of that. Because uh, once you've heard the bizarre, you've heard it. And uh, I want you to go ahead to the Japanese stuff now. And uh, while they're getting the, the tape set up in there, uh, there they go. Now, af after I left Tehran... And uh, that country, which uh, was different from any place I've ever been. I was reminded a lot of Greece, and yet not quite. On the other hand, I was also reminded of uh, other places in the Middle East, like Beirut, but not quite. Each one of these countries is, is distinctly different from the next. Well, after, uh, after uh, leaving Tehran, I uh, flew on to other places, including Lebanon, uh, Beirut. After Beirut, I went to uh, Karachi. I've been in Karachi several times. Istanbul. And uh, finally, Bangkok. And then eventually, uh, I got around over to Tokyo. And, and uh, I think Tokyo is probably a, more, a far more relevant place to talk about to, to, uh, if you want to study a place than any place that I've been in in a long time. And while they're setting up those tapes in there, I'll get rid of a couple of spots here. For one thing, I have, uh, let's see, where is the, yeah, China, speaking of uh, the Far East, uh, I would like to recommend a good restaurant here in New York, the Great Shanghai, which not only uh, deals in the type of Chinese food that most people are used to, which is generally Cantonese food, but they have these elegant foods from the Northeast in China, uh, from uh, places around Peking, and all kinds of uh, Setuan dishes, which are really hot. They're from the west of China. Excellent dishes. You know where sweet and sour food comes from? That comes from Honan, in the center of China. Well, they have all these master chefs from Setuan, Shanghai, Peking, and Canton. All these different chefs are at the Great Shanghai, which is a superb restaurant. And if you'd like to try it uh, and do it the easy way, Sunday brunch. They have a buffet that's served from 11 until 4 every Sunday. And that means all you can eat for $2.75. <laughs> that's dangerous for some people. Children under 4 feet tall are a buck and a half. It's the Great Shanghai Broadway at 103rd Street. And the IRT comes right up there, right there next to the chopstick cleaner. That's the Great Shanghai Broadway at 103. And while we're in the process of doing commercials, how about a little quickie for General Tire here? Yeah. By the way, right now they're having their famous anniversary sale on General Jet White Walls. Four-ply nylon cord General Jet tubeless white walls in a popular size, $650.13. Anniversary price at only $66 for a complete set of four tires. Taxes extra, of course. And for big car owners, larger sizes of the long-mileage General Jet White Walls are also on sale. So, friends, let's hear them guys singing. Mount your General Jet white walls today, but hurry. Sale ends Saturday, the 15th of April. That's at the big red G. General Tire, one-stop car care headquarters. Pa-pa-doo-doo. Real nice. 
see, they have a little note here. At Herb Jordan's General Tire of New Jersey uh, in East Rutherford, you can see these great tires. And by the way, they're so nice and round. You'll like them. They make great conversation pieces, even if you don't have a, even if you don't have a car. A nice thing to put a tire in your living room. Nice new one. Get conversation going. Let's see. We've also got the book Fine Club. Boy, am I loaded with spots here tonight. It's Friday night. Yeah, that book Fine Club. And uh, for those of you who uh, have been having trouble finding books in your neighborhood, you know, the, the reason they've got book clubs, I think, all over the country these days is because many bookshops have failed. They simply carry mostly uh, Charlie Brown T-shirts. So uh, if you'd like to join the Book Fine Club, it's one of the best of the Book Fine Clubs. In fact, it's the only one that has the best of contemporary fiction and so on. They would like to talk to you. They'd like to enroll you and give you a couple of really good deals. And all you have to do is Purchase two books in a whole year to stay in the club, and they'd like to send you along a, a really great book for a buck. For example, uh, F. Lee Bailey's new book. So you can call them now. It's a TN71441, TN71441. The ladies are on duty there, and if you'd like to join the book club, they'd be glad to put your name down. Let's see. We have a book find, T-A-P, Flying Birds. Yeah, that's the last one here. You know, that's the one thing I missed on my trip around the world. I would love to have had my flying bird with me. Well, you know how they are. The customs wouldn't let me take it in. One country, they stamped on it. You know, they were trying to stamp out cockroaches and my flying bird. But uh, <laughs> uh, if you uh, have not seen these things, uh, I don't know how you could help it. But the flying bird, it's uh, 16 inches in wingspan, in case you're interested in the statistics. It... Uh, has a uh, has a load carrying capacity of 1.3 micro ounces and uh, stall speed of three and a half miles per hour. You can figure that out in knots if you want. So it's a mean little bugger in cross currents, though, cross winds. I'll tell you, but it's a great deal of uh, fun, and it'll 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 make you popular in your neighborhood if you go out in the lawn and start flying your bird. And if you haven't flown your bird in years, this is your way to do it. You can get them in a, <laughs> the white dove pattern or the yellow bird which is the classical flying bird and they're only 398 and cheap at half the price uh, and the new york state residents simply add tax just send your check or money order to flying bird you know how to spell flying flying bird b-u-r-d flying bird department s post office box 1909 grand central station new york new york and they are guaranteed to fly okay back to uh back to the mysterious east uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I, I was in Tokyo once, some time ago, and I couldn't believe it when I got back to Tokyo. Everything you have heard about Japan as being uh, swinging is minor compared to the actuality of it. As a matter of fact, I'd have to say that Tokyo is the closest to New York of any city that I have seen in the world. Uh, it feels like New York. I felt totally at home in Tokyo. Did not feel at any point that I was out of my element in Tokyo. Uh, they have department stores in Tokyo that make Macy's look like a little crossroads general store in Michigan. Incredible. I'm Kradiv, and you won't believe it. There's no way for me to describe it to you. And the, it's not tourists that are buying this stuff. It's Japanese by the millions uh, crowding the stores. The entire families 
moving around the streets, carrying their shopping bags. There, you, you see a lot of curious things in Japan. For one thing, the Japanese love to have little kind of minor uniforms. Uh, whenever you see a Japanese tour or a group of Japanese school children, they're all wearing little yellow hats or they're carrying little sticks with yellow balloons on the top so they can be identified, and there's a little crowd of them all carrying balloons. They love badges with uh, things hanging down. Uh, and, and you just can't quite get used to that. And, and the, the Japanese men all look alike uh, in many ways because of the clothing they wear. Uh, they tend to all wear dark, uh, very conservatively cut black suits and uh, white shirts. Well, this must be the last stronghold of the white shirt is Japan. And uh, the knit ties they look very elegant, and they always carry cameras. And uh, <laughs> they're very elegant coffee shops. And I, I recorded some stuff in Japan that, uh, that I thought you may enjoy hearing, give you an idea what Japan is like. You know, the, 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 the climate of Japan is very much like New York, too. It's kind of cool. Uh, they have a winter, a very distinct winter. 28 million Japanese cars are going up and down the streets like mad. Hondas, Yamahas, Suzukis, motorcycles. You don't see nearly as many motorcycles, but one thing I did notice, uh, you see a lot of motorcycles on Japanese TV and the Japanese uh, dramas. And there's uh, Japanese television is absolutely, uh, is, you, you got to see it to believe it. Do, do I have the ball game up now, Jerry? Well, uh, one of the first things that I saw, when I got up, I got up uh, late, I had been been on this trip, you know, for it seemed like months by this time, by the time I got to Tokyo, and I slept late on the first day. I just had to get some sleep. And when I got up in the morning, I had this elegant room that was that was in the uh, tallest building in all of Tokyo, the Keio Plaza Hotel, spelled K-E-I-O, Keio Plaza. Gee, a fantastic modernistic place. And you look out over the entire city, and as I, as I, as I swung the curtains back, they had curtains that covered glass walls. The, the room had one wall that was totally glass from the floor to the ceiling. I just swung the glass back and I was look, looking over all of Tokyo. I was about 20 stories, maybe 15 stories up and this is a flat city and you could see nothing but the, the, the city spreading out below me. It seemed to go on for miles and then off in the distance, get this, drifting out of the, what looked like a haze, you could see Mount Fujiyama. It, look, it stands in the air like a curious Ghost, you can't really see the outline of it, but you can see the outline of the snow. It was like a, like a Japanese etching, and I I flipped on the color TV set. All the rooms came with these elegant little color TV sets, and what hits me right away is a Japanese ball game, is in full swing, <laughs> on Saturday afternoon in full color, and I made some comments, and I'll let you hear what a Japanese ball game is is what it sounds like on Jap TV. They have bands playing, sirens. This is a ball game. The teams are lined up, one on the third baseline, one on the, uh, the first baseline. They, they line up and bow to each other. Now the band leaves the field. The players are running back to their dugouts. Apparently they do this in the seventh inning, uh, from what I can tell. And now the uh, teams are lined up and facing the stands. Never saw anything like this. They all face the stands. They're bowing to the stands and including the umpire. They bow to the stands. 
Now the other team is lined up on the first baseline and bowing to the uh, stands. Baseball is very ritualistic. This is quite a scene. I've never seen anything like this at a ball game. Uh, the Japanese, of course, this is their national sport. And they have it very highly ritualized compared to the American game. Uh, the teams bow to one another. Uh, they play the national anthem. And the crowds uh, all seem to be wearing caps that uh, show the team that they're for. You can see great, great crowds. Now, I don't mean sporadically like out at Shea. I mean great sections of the crowds have uh, team caps on. Uh, they're very highly organized. And now the catcher is standing, having his picture taken, his arm is around the pitcher. I can't figure this out. Uh, it seems to be in between games, I suspect. Uh, the, the ball game was just over. Now I think we have a doubleheader this afternoon and the teams are preparing for the second game and they're telecasting uh, the between game activities right now. Uh, one of the players has come out of the dugout carrying bats. But I'm uh, fascinated with, as an old baseball player and fan, the continual uproar here. There, uh, <laughs> uh, there goes a siren, as you can hear. And uh, now there's a picture on the screen of the, uh, the warm-ups. The two pitchers are warming up. Now the teams are again lining up out in front of their dugouts, both teams facing each other. Each in front of the dugouts, uh, complete with uh, batting helmets. Now they bow to each other. <laughs> and now they're ready to uh, begin uh, what apparently is the second game of a doubleheader. Uh, it's a beautiful day here. I'm sitting in my hotel room. It overlooks uh, all of Tokyo. It's the Keio Plaza Hotel. Spelled K-E-I-O, Keio Plaza. And it is a spectacular 40- or 50-story hotel that sticks up like a gigantic uh, Pan Am building right here smack in the middle of Tokyo. And the ball game this afternoon uh, is being played here in Tokyo, and the season is under full swing here. And now they're ready to go. This is apparently the Lindsay Nelson of Tokyo. <laughs> Did you hear the, the word home run? Uh, they, there's all kinds of, uh, of American baseball terms that you suddenly hear larded right in the middle of the Japanese. One thing about Tokyo, uh, I uh, don't think I've seen traffic like this in my life. Uh, the traffic is just tremendous. If you think you have problems in New York, you should see the, t uh, the uh, traffic in Tokyo. There are a lot of things about Tokyo uh, surprise people first time they hear. For one thing, the, the fantastic department stores are just, just absolutely spectacular. Uh, they're just jam-packed with uh, stuff from all over the world, and it's beautifully presented. And incidentally, uh, Compared to the rest of the Orient, uh, Tokyo is just uh, its just another planet, no question about it. In fact, all of Japan. Uh, the, the fans are now, a big shot of the fans here, back of first base, and they have huge banners that they're holding aloft. Uh, I guess they're fans of one ball club. Uh, they're giving us the scores of the first game. The score was three to nothing. It was a shutout the first game. <laughs> 
And I presume now we're about to start the second game. Another thing about Tokyo that uh, that I've noticed uh, that that uh, New York, you know, it's a little depressing to come from New York and realize that New York, uh, as a city, is is indescribably dirty compared to many places in the world. Like, say, for example, Tokyo. Uh, there are many areas of Tokyo, of course, that have uh, pollution and dirt and so on, but. But uh, in general, the subways, for example, are just... There's no comparison between the subways of New York and the subways of, uh, of Tokyo. I suspect it has something to do... I hate to say it, but I think it has something to do with our national character. I think the Americans' attitude, uh, the hell with everybody else, is beginning to show in the streets. Uh, papers, cans, dirt, cigar butts, all the rest of it. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I wish I could play more for you, but that that was a comment that I was making to myself in the hotel room, and uh, you you are hit by that right away. Uh, it, it would be it would be absolutely unthinkable for anybody in Japan, and in fact, in most of the world, to do the things that we do to our subway cars. If you notice all those millions of uh, names and stuff written all over the sides of subway cars and walls and stuff, uh, you just don't see that in the rest of the world. That kind of thing. But uh, I have some great tapes that I, I recorded in the Ginza, the Ginza, which is the, uh, well, the, you know, the nightlife center of, of Japan. It's uh, been that for about 100 years, and uh, it's had its ups and downs. But the Ginza, if you, if you go to Tokyo, of course, you have to go ultimately to the Ginza. All uh, tourists do eventually. It's just like all tourists eventually in New York eventually come up somewhere in, in the, the Broadway area. They wind up in Times Square. But... Uh, I'll, I'll play the uh, the tapes for you next week sometime. By the way, uh, I'm just slowly getting uh, adapted back into uh, being back in the States. <laughs> it's like having one week of decompression after taking a week uh, to travel around the entire globe. And it was uh, an entire circumnavigation of the globe uh, via 747. And I'm just getting over the jet fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, speaking of uh, big moments in existence, don't forget, tomorrow night, the Carlton Theater, we'll be there live as a bird, right in the heart of downtown Red Bank, New Jersey. That's tomorrow night at 8, and there will be tickets on sale at the box office. And I, I think this time we may get away, in spite of uh, what they say with our underwater ballet. We've got it all wired up, we've got the pipes in, it may work out. See you tomorrow night. Think clean thoughts and, uh, you know. Oh, by the way, speaking of clean thoughts and don't let them shove you around, I think that the greatest crowd shovers in the world are the Japanese. I'm going to tell you, you get buffeted around in a Japanese crowd. They bang into you, knock you down, throw a shoulder into you, throw a cross block at you, and give you a quick knee to the groin and move on without even breathing hard. They're the, they're the ultimate crowd people. So, tomorrow night, Red Bank, 8 o'clock. You be there, man. Yeah. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for Big Lester Smith and the News. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. New York City has yet to reach a contract agreement with the city's bridge tenders, and the result may be a repeat performance of open bridges around Manhattan. Tonight, members of Teamsters Union Local 237 voted to strike at an unspecified time and leave all 24 movable bridges in the city wide open. 
Last June, the same 300 bridge operators opened the spans to block traffic from crossing the East and Harlem Rivers. The bridge tenders have been working without a contract since January 1971. Negotiations have broken off, with the union demanding a shorter time for its men to reach the top annual pay scale. Union President Barry Feinstein said he'll notify City Labor Relations Director Herbert Haber tomorrow of the strike authorization in the hope that the talks will be resumed. Otherwise, declared Feinstein, if we go out, the bridges will be up. The big counterattack is on. American aircraft and Navy destroyers in the China Sea fired on North Vietnamese targets today with bombs, rockets, and thousands of rounds of bullets in the biggest air and naval operation since the 1968 bombing stopped in the north. Bombers also attacked North Vietnamese positions in South Vietnam's Quang Tri province, the center of the North's offensive to smash the South defenses. Forward air observers reported two United States planes shot down by surface-to-air missiles, but the military command in Saigon refused to confirm North Vietnam's claim.